give me one shot here on a blue chip stock, believe me, Kevin, the only problem I'm going to have is that you didn't buy more. Nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in circles. What's going on, NBA draft fans? Your boys are back. The Wolves of Ball Street, your favorite draft analyst, favorite draft analyst. The Draft Act NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Corey Tulliba. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Albert. Garbage time again. Albert, what's good, my dude? Dude, all is good. It is uh, an incredible time to be alive right now. We have the NBA Draft right around the corner, so things literally could not be better in life. And uh, we've got a very special guest joining us today. So with that being said, let me stop talking and uh, let's welcome in our guest. Yes, sir. We have Ricky O'Donnell, editor and writer at SB Nation. Uh, Ricky, thanks for for coming to chop it up on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I've been a big fan of No Ceilings throughout this draft cycle. You guys are like the sleeper of this draft cycle. I I don't. (laughs) Were you guys doing coverage last draft cycle? Because I feel like you hit my radar this draft cycle. If nothing else. That's a very astute observation. Uh, We were not doing cut. Well, we were all doing coverage last draft cycle uh but we were doing it individually i mean albert and i were doing this podcast together um and i ran uh, a short-lived independent magazine called the hardwood that i had kind of had a couple of guys who wrote for that um that i i had you know networked with and that i respected their opinion with and myself and tyler rucker uh one of the other guys at no ceilings we were talking one day and we were like man, wouldn't it be easier if we just did this as like a big team instead of like trying to all compete with each other? So through all of the the networking we had all done, um, we decided that we were going to team up and start this sub stack where we just bombard people with content and write every day and make it free and do a bunch of podcasts and video and all that. And it's been really cool because it seems as though the response to uh, the no ceilings content has been really positive for the most part and uh, much appreciated to everybody, you know, out there who has found us even recently um, because it's been, you know, I think it's exceeded our wildest expectations early on. You know, you guys often uh, make me feel like a piece of garbage because you're just putting out so much content. I'm like, I got to do it with these guys. They're doing it on the Substack. So, uh, it's been sick watching you guys grow it. And thanks for asking me to be on. Yeah, well, um, the you know one of the the themes of this particular podcast, you know, it's called the Draft Act NBA podcast. We like to talk about players' draft stock, um, and one of the the things that we do when we usually break down one specific prospect, and we go, you know, we talk about them for like an hour, and we talk about like all the different mainstream outlets and like where they've ranked them. So we've been, you know, using the SB Nation rankings, your rankings. Um, as one of our, uh, you know, uh, identifiers for for where prospects draft stock has been throughout the year. And, and you know, that was last draft cycle and this draft cycle for the podcast. So, you know, uh, you've been contributing to this podcast unknowingly for uh, about a year. Well, I haven't really done a big board <laughs> yet. I've mostly just been doing mock drafts. So it gives me plausible deniability. I can just say, like, oh, that was a bit <laughs> if I fuck something up. So uh, that's the key to long-term success in this industry. 100%. Uh, but uh, today we're, we're going to do things uh, a little differently. We're going to touch on a few different prospects, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I figured that we'd start um, – 
with you just recently wrote about Patrick Baldwin Jr. And he has most definitely been one of the hardest guys to figure out in this draft because he came into the year uh, a lot like some of the other, uh, you know, like five or six other prospects as top 10 guys and just didn't live up to the expectations that we bestowed upon him. And when I watch him, I still want to believe, you know, like I, yeah. I really do. Like even when, even some of the, the bad stuff, I'm just like, but I see it. Like I'm trying to look in the crystal ball. It looks good to me. So where do you stand uh, with Patrick Baldwin Jr. now compared to where you stood with him earlier on in the process? Yeah, I think from if you want to like talk yourself into Patrick Baldwin Jr., the best thing to do is to just throw away the Milwaukee tape. Like the <laughs> Milwaukee thing never happened. He played like 11 or 12 games as it was. He was never really healthy. Obviously, he dislocated the ankle in the second game of his senior year of high school. Tried to come back, I think, a little bit too early by playing FIBA uh, on the U19 team last year that won the gold medal against France. He was solid for that team, but he was never, like, spectacular. And I think that kind of coming back pretty quickly to play there and just never allowing his body to fully heal. And then, like, when you get to Milwaukee everyone's expecting this dude to just like totally dominate what was one of the worst conferences in college basketball. I think Ken Palm had it 22nd or 26th out of 31 or 32 division one conferences. Uh, it was a situation where like they needed a big year from his personal perspective to save his dad's job. So like immediately like huge red flag, like he's going to this low major conference, but it's not like a Doug McDermott situation where he's going to be like a multi-year player and like grow with his dad. Yeah. RJ Hunter as well. Mm. Uh, how mm-hmm. you know his Bulls dad? Legend. His dad's at Tulane now, right? Like he was sort of able to uh, like boost his dad's career opportunities and make himself a first rounder. But it was just too big of a gambit for Pat. Like it's like, dude, you can have a starting spot on the last ever Coach K team, or you could be like the man somewhere else if you don't want to play off Paolo and AJ. But you know, this is what he wanted to do. I think he viewed it as like, okay, this is the only time in my life I'm ever going to get a chance to play for my dad. Then I'm going to be a professional basketball player for the rest of my youth, basically. And that's going to be like a totally different experience. So I might as well take advantage of the opportunity. But, you know, it was just, uh, it seemed like it, it never had a chance to succeed, given the fact that he was never really healthy and that the team context around him was just absolutely atrocious in like every possible way. So if you want to talk yourself into Patrick Baldwin Jr., and I do, mm-hmm. throw out the college tape and just sort of look at what made him an elite prospect in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can really quickly, I, first off, like I'm totally with you. I think the college stuff, you kind of have to throw it out. But something that you said at the end uh, of your piece when you're talking about how progression is supposed to be linear for top basketball prospects, right? And I think a lot of times we have – we can get into that mindset when we're breaking down draft prospects where we imagine everything's going to be linear with these guys. But something that I wanted to highlight from your piece is you talked about how um, – you talked about how the measurables were great of the combine, but the testing wasn't so great. Right. His high school tape was awesome and the U19 stuff is awesome, but the college stuff is not not too great. And I think that's an interesting thing with Patrick Baldwin Jr., where there are some parts of his game where you're like, yeah, these things are awesome. And then these things are not so awesome. So if we can and just talk about how you project his 
progression on the next level? Do you feel like he, if you have, maybe, maybe not a comparison per se, but how do you see him eventually progressing in the league? What's the timeline that you would kind of put on him? Do you think he's going to be a guy that's going to take three to five years to figure things out? Do you think maybe if he's in the right system, he can contribute from day one? How do you see his progression going with all those different factors? Yeah, I think in some ways, it sounds ridiculous to say because he was playing in the Horizon League of all places, but like his life in the, like the burden on his shoulders as a player should be Mm. lighter in the NBA than it was in college. It sounds totally insane because he was playing for the Milwaukee Panthers. But I guess like when he was going to Milwaukee, everyone, like he was sort of, he went there in part, I think, to show that he could be more than a spot up shooter, that like he could sort of, I don't know if I want to say be an offensive engine, but that like he could be a primary offensive option that he was going to be someone who could create offense, you know, out of isolations and of different play types And in the NBA. I just think his role is going to be a lot more defined. No one's going to be asking Patrick Baldwin jr. To like run an isolation or run a pick and roll in the NBA. He's going to be spacing the floor. He's going to be attacking closeouts when he can, and he's going to be flashing, you know, the mid range game and some of the like high field stuff that sort of helped stamp him as a top prospect back in high school so it's interesting I think like obviously there's there's a certain like athleticism threshold you need to be an NBA player and that's my biggest question with him really the dude can barely jump over a ruler he had sub Nikola Vucevic level hops (laughs) he had like a 26 inch vertical uh so you know you just wonder like does and then he was slow too in like all those (laughs) sprinting, testing, you wonder, like, where is he really athletically? And I talked to him uh, the day after he did the testing, and he didn't want to make the angle an excuse. He was saying, like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting healthier, I'm, I'm getting better, but, you know, still not all the way there physically. You just wonder, like, where is he athletically? Because he's definitely huge. And I think, you know, when you look at a guy who's 6'10 and a half, I believe his standing reach off the top of my head is 9'2". I would draw, like, 9'1", 9'2", as, like, the line of, how big you can be to be a center in the league is with that level of standing reach. So he's gigantic. He's also very slow. And in the NBA, I feel like his role is going to be more defined to like spot up shooter and less about having to like, you know, lift as being the guy who lifts up everyone else around him. I think that was never his game, never the best use of his talent. And, uh, you know, as someone who is in a, a narrower, more defined role in the league, I think he can be pretty good still. I think out like when we were scouting Patrick Baldwin Jr. like you know months and months ago before the season started, we were just watching the tape and we were like, "There's no way that this guy is actually like six eight like he's listed yeah. at or whatever." We're like, "He's gigantic! Like yeah. he looks so much bigger than everybody on the court." Um, and then when he tested that way, I was like, "All right, well, that makes so much sense, and it makes me feel good about." Um, it makes me feel better about his projection uh, just having massive size. But when I saw the athletic stuff and maybe it has to do with the ankle injury, I've never watched him on the court and went, I don't think that like, I, I never said he's unathletic, like, like in an actual basketball context, maybe I've never been like athleticism is one of his, the first things that you talk yeah. about with him. But there was always this like inherent smoothness that he played with where it was like he was born and bred to play basketball and he moves like a basketball player moves, which is like, I don't know, maybe that helps 
mask some of what I'm missing with his athleticism. But like, as far as what he's doing on the court, like, yeah, uh, especially, you know, with an ankle, a bum ankle, I probably don't want him isolated on John Moran at, you know, on an Island, but I don't know. I'm just, is it crazy to not be worried about like his measure, uh, his athletic testing numbers? I'm like, not really worried about it. Yeah. I don't think it's crazy. It sort of depends like what role do you see him playing? In the NBA, right. like defensively, let's say. Yeah. So, like to me, the best thing he can do defensively is just like be big and put his arms up and provide some amount of supplemental rim protection. Now, I don't think you're going to see him in like the Robert Williams off the ball <laughs> role where he's like the rotational defender blowing stuff up because he's just not that level of athlete to like be able to cover ground that quickly. But he's he's pretty stout towards the rim. He's he no one's going to play him at center. I don't think because I don't think he's a good enough rebounder to play center. Uh, but I think like when he's near the basket, he can contest shots. I do not want him running around screens to try to defend like basically nominal threes who are sliding up to the four. So you sort of have to like scheme him into a good spot defensively. Now, the beauty of his game is offensively, he has the type of skill set that sort of allows everyone else more room to be the best version of themselves on offense. Like, I think he can fit into a lot of different. Uh, he can fit with a lot of different players on offense because he has the off-ball shooting. Uh, I think he can, you know, do a little bit in terms of putting the ball on the deck, making a good passing read. So it's interesting, like, going back to why I originally was so high on him in this draft class. Like, obviously, the dude has as good of a pedigree as anyone in this class outside of, you know, Paolo and Shep, basically, he was the number one recruit over both those guys in this class when he was a sophomore. And even after he had the ankle injury, he still ended as a top five recruit. Uh, And I think he really started to pop when he was, I keep wanting to say you play, because I'm doing a piece on Shade Sharp uh, tomorrow. (laughs) But it was Phenom U. I'm finally remembering. Uh, Was Was it the Jalen Johnson team? Yeah, Jalen Johnson, Reese Beekman. They had a lot of good athletes and a lot of good defenders around him. And he was very much just like able to kind of be the primary scorer without having to be the primary creator. So, you know, I think when you when you look at his defense, I think being big is probably the best thing he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but offensively, I think he does bring a lot of skills to the table, in part because he's got that size and he's got the shooting stroke. Yeah. And I think like on both sides of the ball, like he's not, it, he's not like an aggressive player, right? Like he's, like you said, he's not going to be that roving uh, Robert Williams type guy. Who's just like, let me go and, and swap this stuff. And I see that with him, like on both sides of the ball, maybe that played into like some of him showing that he's probably not the number one option on a team. But, you know, I, I kind of think back to last year with Zaire Williams and who was a guy I was much lower on because you know, there were times watching his tape at Stanford where I was like, I'm not sure if he can dribble a basketball when he's <laughs> defended by a, an athlete. And I was like, you know, I, I, I don't know if he's going to return the type of value that he's, he, you would expect if he selected high, unless he like tries to be more Mikhail Bridges than this shot creating isolation step back guy that, you know, maybe you thought he was coming out of Sierra Canyon. And I was, you know, uh, probably right about the role because I think that he definitely outplayed my expectations this year, but I still see that kind of transition for Patrick Baldwin jr. Where it's like, it's so easy to see him fit with like other guys who can 
create their own shot and make plays and simplify what he has to do on the court. And to me, like, I still see the fact that he could be a star in that role. And that doesn't mean that, you know, maybe he's going to be an all-star or whatever, but like he could be a really valuable guy. So I'm just like, what range do you take that guy? Because there are people that are like, you know, a lot of like, I still think that as a talent, like I would probably say he's a lottery level talent and he can return that value. But from, you know, you can, you hear Intel, it's like, he might go in the second round. So like, what range do you think is like the appropriate range for a guy with this pedigree who does have these valuable NBA skills, but does have all these question marks? Yeah, I think like ideally you probably feel most comfortable drafting him if you're a team with multiple picks in the first round. I'm looking at the Grizzlies. I think the Grizzlies pick 22nd and 29th. Uh, The Spurs pick, what, four times in the top 38, I think. (laughs) Multiple picks, like hell yeah. Take a flyer on Patrick Baldwin Jr. I mean, he's huge and he should be a very good shooter. Of course, he shot 26% at the college level in a mid-major league, so Maybe you could put the shooting under a microscope a little bit, but I did actually look up the numbers provided by Cerebro Sports on his EYBL, uh, his last year of EYBL. In 17 games, he was hitting like 36% of his threes and like 85% of his free throws. So the EYBL shooting numbers are typically like lower than where your baselines would be if you're looking at like college or the NBA. So I think that that's a, you know, especially when you're hitting 85% of your free throws, hopefully you have a pretty encouraging. Uh, shooting numbers but so I'm thinking a team with you know just outside the lottery with multiple picks is probably the best spot for him now I'm in Chicago I'm a Bulls fan I think what do the Bulls they need size and shooting like who's got more size and shooting than Patrick Baldwin Jr but he's obviously an inherently risky pick the Bulls pick 18th I think if they took him I would be excited about it but I wouldn't feel a ton of conviction in like this is definitely going to be a super solid pick moving forward to me. A little bit of an upside gamble. I mean, he would have to stay healthy, but uh, a team in that range, late teens, outside of the lottery. You know, I don't, I don't love this class outside of the lottery in that, like, uh, let's say, 15 to 24 range. Not particularly my favorite part of this draft class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I can easily talk myself into Patrick Baldwin Jr. on the ironclad logic of why not? <laughs> he shoots it, so it, it should be fine. Okay. Uh, but you know, a lot of it comes down to can he get healthy and then can he stay healthy? Because when you're having two se- like consecutive seasons compromised and the dude's like 19 years old, it's like your body should not be breaking down at 19 years old, but you know, he doesn't really have a history of durability yet. So in terms of his draft range, ideally, I think Grizzlies at 22 or 29 if he makes it that long. Or the Spurs in that range too. Like if you got multiple picks, to me he's the perfect guy to take. Uh, oh, really? Quick. You mentioned the injury history and all that he's gone through the last couple of seasons. And this is more of like a soft data type of question. But I was wondering with all that he's gone through, his experience at Milwaukee, the U19s, the injury history, and all that stuff. From what you heard from him, and I, I know he spoke to you guys at SB Nation, but was wondering where do you think he is 
mentally with everything that he's gone through. And of course, I'm sure he's on Twitter. I'm sure he's on Instagram. I'm sure he's seen the whispers of his stock falling. And I'm sure, you know, after he tested the way that he did at the combine, there might, might be a lot of different things running through his head. I was wondering, do you have any insight on where he's at mentally, confidence wise, all those things heading into the draft and with all that's going on? Yeah, I talked to him a little bit about that. So I was going to write about him in November. And that was going to be like the first guy I was going to do a profile on in this draft class. I called him up. I called his high school coach, talked to him. Then I got a hold of him before practice one day. And I was excited to talk to him. And then they had a game the day before. And they lost to like Eastern Kentucky. It was the second game of the year or something. I'm like, ah, that's not a good sign. Like, where's this one going? He like did not have a good game in that one. And then I got him for like maybe like 10 minutes or eight minutes on the phone uh, before practice. And he sounded like he was frustrated with whatever was going on. And now at that point, he didn't suffer like the re-aggravation of the ankle. He did that a couple games later that basically limited his entire freshman season. And then I talked to him a bit at the combine too. And I think, you know, the, the toughest part was just like he was branded as a top prospect. And then you're seeing all these other guys sort of shoot past him or solidify their status. Like he was supposed to be a peer of Paolo and Chet. He was widely considered to be a better prospect than Jabari Smith Jr. Well, Jabari Smith was sort of able to prove himself at, I think Jabari had a big Pangos camp and, uh, you know, all of these events that Jabari sort of shined at and then had an excellent year at Auburn, obviously. Uh, I think Pat thought, you know, this could have been me if I was healthy, but he was just never healthy. So it's a combination, I think, of, you know, just poor, poor team context and uh, maybe trying to get back on the floor a little bit too early. In terms of where he's at mentally, I would think that there's a direct correlation to where he's at physically. Like, how long is that ankle injury going to linger? How long is it going to be a problem? Uh, I know when he, so I read an interview he gave with USA Basketball when he made the FIBA U19 team. And in that interview, he's like, yeah, I've re-aggravated the ankle a couple times already. Okay, so that was you know, well before he went to Milwaukee. So I think that's got to be the hardest part of like, okay, you suffered. First of all, who's even heard of a dislocated ankle? Has anyone yeah. heard of that before? It's like, you know, you sprain, fracture. Dislocated? Right. Like, where'd it go? Like, it's <laughs> your ankle. So uh, I think that that took the biggest toll on him mentally. Of not just suffering the injury, but like not being able to get healthy after the injury and uh, seeing everyone else raise their stock. So you know, only he could really answer that, but I, I definitely think he was very frustrated. Now, you mentioned that from Chicago, you're a Bulls fan. I, too, am a Bulls fan. So, uh, you know, if he was available at 18 and the Bulls front office swung that way, I wouldn't be upset personally. And with uh, Arturis having been part of that Denver front office that for years had kind of taken risks on the guys who had high pedigree and dropped a little bit in the draft. I don't know. Could be, could be something there as, as a guy, if he's on the board. Um, now you also today released uh, a fun uh, mock draft where it was two mock drafts in one. Uh, and you basically gave us what the most likely pick is going to be for each team. And then, who you believe the best pick would be for each team is, which is a fun wrinkle. So I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Uh, you have 
for the Orlando Magic, the most likely pick, Jabari Smith Jr. We've been hearing a lot of smoke there, right, that he's going to be the guy. But the best pick for the Orlando Magic, in your opinion, is Paolo Boncaro, who seemingly uh, feels like is assumed he's going to go three to the Rockets. So am I to believe that you think that Paolo is the best fit for Orlando, or do you think he's the best prospect in this class? I'm going to say both. I've been a Apollo guy from the start of this wow. every year. So I've been covering the NBA draft for a long time at SBH. I've been obviously insanely lucky to be able to do it. And actually watching these finals and Wiggins shining in the finals. The first prospect feature I ever did was Andrew Wiggins at the 2013 McDonald's All-American game. So go. I'm getting old at this point. But I one thing I do every year is the day after the draft, I do next year's mock draft which is just a big board it's like the top 30 board i've done this every year since like 2014 and i had paulo one chet two on my preseason board and i just never really saw enough to pivot off it i was so close to putting chet number one going into the tournament but i was like you know what i'm just gonna hold out on it a little bit more like we'll see what happens in march and in march i thought paulo just sort of solidified himself as the top prospect in the class so in terms of him going to the magic I think he's the best player in the class. I've had, I do think it's like there's four tier one prospects in this class. I don't think that he's like in a tier by himself mm-hmm. or the head and shoulders above everyone else. I got Paolo one, Chet two, Ivy three, Jabari four. Uh, and the reason I have Paolo one is because I just put a value on shot creation. I think that if you're a bad team and you don't have shot creation, that's the biggest thing you need above anything else. And I look at the Magic, and, like, they got some guys I like for sure in terms of creating shots. Markel Fultz, my guy, watched him at DeMatha back in the day. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's a that's a long I'm with you. there. But, you know, Jalen Suggs uh, wasn't the highest on him last year, but good player for sure. He's going to be a good player for a long time. And then you got Cole Anthony, who kind of took a step last year. But I'm not seeing them as a team that, like, definitely has their primary creator. And that's what I think – Paolo can be in a best case scenario. Now, obviously, if he doesn't hit those peak level outcomes, he's probably not as good as a secondary option because like the floor spacing is a little bit of a question mark. The defense maybe a little bit of a question mark, uh, but 6'10", 250 pounds. The dude is as a great handle for someone that size, very good live dribble passer. I don't really think his skill as a passer shows up statistically. No. I think he only had no. like 17% assist rate this year at Duke. Now, Coach K has committed a lot of crimes against basketball during his time at Duke and not letting Paolo <laughs> run any pick and rolls, basically. It was frustrating me throughout the year, not to mention his use of A.J. Griffin throughout this year. But preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I just think like Paolo has the best ability to create shots. He's gigantic. It's 6'10", 250, very strong, uh, has a polished mid-range scoring package. Um, and I just think that like he's going to be able to see over the defense, hit passing angles that other guys can't hit. And then when you think about primary initiators in the league, like none of them are 6'10", 250. So mm-hmm. maybe in a sense that could work against him, but like, even the big primary initiators are like, you know, 6'7", 6'8", and right. maybe 220 or 230. So Paolo's just gigantic. Now, he's not super fast. I would say that's like one of the big things limiting him is just like a lack of high-end athleticism. That's why I actually love the idea of him and Jalen Green in Houston. That's like Jalen can just hit the gas 
Impalo can be a little bit more of the deliberate playmaker. Now you probably need three, three and D guys around him. I don't know if <laughs> Gangun fits into that long term. But like if you have those two guys as your foundation, I think that's really good. So, anyways, I've had Paolo number one in this class the whole time. I think it's very close between him and Chet. I love Chet too. I don't want to be branded as a Chet hater just because I don't have number <laughs> one. But uh, I think, you know, give me the creator. If you're the magic, I- I'm not trusting any of these guys as primary creators. That's just me. And I would go with Paolo because I think he's got the most creation upside. I definitely agree with you with on Orlando. Like, I. I love I love Fultz. I mean, uh, it's a shame that he isn't the guy that he showed to be in college because the shiftiness, the athleticism, the yeah. body. Uh, I mean, it the shot making package. It looked like a lock. I, I do not fault the Sixers for going uh, with him at one. And I think Franz is fantastic. Outplayed his you know draft slot this year or his projection where people had him. But I also don't think he's a primary. So Paolo does fit into that. I think the size between Paolo and Franz in the front court and the versatility of those guys to play off each other would be really fun. My thing with Paolo, and I saw him twice this year. I saw him against Kentucky early on in the season, then uh, against Miami in the ACC tournament. Uh, And when I saw him up close, I was like, oh my God, he is gigantic. And like, he looks as big as he's list, as he's listed had a good game. Um, you know, he, he had some, the cramps or whatever, but other than that, like he, he showed what I wanted to see. And coming into the year, I was like, I wanted to be in. Cause I'm like 6'10, 250, ball on a string can shoot it in a variety of ways. Obviously the shot is a little, you know, need some tweaks and some consistency issues, but like sometimes it looks really smooth. But like the high school stuff, you're like, all right, sometimes he takes some plays off. And I coached high school basketball for almost 10 years. High school kids sometimes are going to take plays off. Like these guys are not like <laughs> mature enough to always understand like that they coaches want them or need them to go 100. Uh, they're literally children. Uh, so I was like, all right, let's see. Um, and Paulo's probably still a child, <laughs> but like, uh, let's see if he goes to Duke gets the coaching. And there were still a lot of times where I was like, I just wanted to turn the gas on. Like, just, just please stop taking these possessions off. But then like in the ACC tournament game that I went to see, I'm like, Oh my God, coach K just ran another double drag with Trevor Keels and Jeremy Roach. And they're ignoring Paulo and AJ (laughs) completely for seven possessions in a row. I want to die. Um, now I, I get it, Paolo. Like maybe you're a little frustrated. You're not getting the rock. You don't feel like you're a part. Of, like you're just, you know, one of the screeners uh, up top. So like I go back and forth because theoretically, it's like his scoring package with his playmaking feel at six ten. And I'm I've been from the beginning been like I actually think he has some really good defensive instincts when he wants to defend and he can move well enough at that size that he's basically just uh, just devouring smaller guards. But it does come back to, like, is he going to put it together? Is he going to play hard? Because I've seen it two levels now where I've had those questions. And it's no guarantee. Is he going to be a guy that maximizes that potential? Whereas, like, I kind of think Chet is going to maximize whatever he has in him. I think Jabari, and I'm also a little bit lower on Jabari than consensus seems to be. But I think that he'll maximize whatever his potential actually is. I don't know if I, I could say that 
Paolo will. And that's the only thing that's scaring me. He's my number two guy. And um, by all accounts in like almost any other circumstance, I think he would be my number one guy, but I'm just a little concerned about the effort. Yeah. Like when you were talking about how old he was, I was smiling because my comment was going to be, he's old enough to party. And what yeah. I would like, like <laughs> can I get some intel on like, what, what's the man behind like off the court? What's that like? Uh, because that's a huge part of it, right? Like when you think about the guys who have really maximized their potential or beat their draft slot, Thinking like Jimmy Butler obviously is like the Let's Herculean go. work ethic, but like Draymond too, just like a lot of guys who just maximize every single ounce of their effort. When I think about it with Paolo, I'll frame it like this. I think that like he has the highest upside, in my opinion, to be a primary option, a primary creator. But if he doesn't hit that level, he's probably worse as a role player than everyone else. Like you can see Jabari like his shooting is going to play anywhere. Like he's already probably one of the best six ten plus shooters in the world. He's going to be totally dynamic as a shooter, but you know, a shooter in the modern NBA kind of a role player, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the star is the guy yeah. who creates the advantage. Yeah. And I feel like Paolo has the best opportunity to be the guy who's consistently creating the advantage. Now he is kind of slow. So like when you say he takes plays off, I'm not necessarily disagreeing, but I just wonder <laughs> like how much of that is because he's just slow. Like he's he's not uh he mm. can't really run backwards, I don't think very well. <laughs> and he can't really jump super well. Mm. So I like, you know, on the high school tape, the reason why I had him number one coming into the year is I was watching him on the grind session a little bit post-pandemic. And he was making some really sick defensive rotations. And when you have the size, and I felt like his best attribute coming into the year, and clearly now everyone knows I'm full of shit, was his feel. And I thought that that was like evident on both ends of the floor because I thought he was a really sharp rotational defender and could do some stuff as a passer that was really interesting. Not like not even out of a live dribble, but out of like a standstill passer. So I'm not sure if that level of feel really translated during his time at Duke. Uh, I think the athletic limitations sort of did show themselves. And, like, Paolo doesn't really get that much. Like, people will say it with chat all the time, but Paolo doesn't really get it. But Paolo's just so big and so burly mm. that, like, he's not very fast. And I think that that matters quite a bit. And that's why I do like the pairing with him and Jalen. Like, I think that could be really, really fun, but – uh yeah like I, I get what you're saying about taking plays off did you mean that more on the defensive end or the offensive end well i think offensively a lot of it had to do with the offense and like mm-hmm. college offenses just aren't allowing him to always be the primary creator like a lot of times he's like one of the guys standing at the elbow in a horn set and you're just like all right we're gonna go to wendell moore for running off of whatever and he's just uninvolved and like for me, selfishly, not trying to win college basketball games and trying to evaluate right. these guys in a pro context, I'm like, I would love to see an AJ Griffin and Paulo pick and roll or something, you know, <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah. That would be that would be cool. Um, but defensively, yeah, there were times where I'm just like, where I was like, because early on in the year, I was actually like, I actually think he's giving pretty consistent effort defensively. And then I think as the season went on, up until the tournament where he turned it on. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, this guy actually is really awesome. Like, I, mm-hmm. we forgot. Uh, I, I do feel like he wasn't putting in as much effort. Maybe it's just like it's a long 
season. Uh, you know, let's just get to the tournament already. But like, whatever the mentality is there, it's not my favorite attribute yeah. in a player, you know? So my only retort to that, and then we can move off onto whatever else, but like, could we say the same thing about peak Luka Doncic and James Harden when they don't have the ball, right? Like sometimes when you're the guy, it's kind of hard to stay engaged when you're off the ball. And also he's not really like a confident and reliable floor spacer in terms of being a catch and shoot option. So it's fair. I'm probably being too apologetic for him. Uh, <laughs> this draft class is so fun because like, I feel like everyone's got to plant their flag on who they think is number one. Yeah. yeah. I saw Jeremy Wu the other day out, just like out at a concert. And I know Jeremy is just like all in on Jabari Smith. And <laughs> no, I have Jabari fourth. I fucking love that. Like he's yeah. just in on Jabari Smith. And it's like, any of these guys could be good. The way I've been framing this draft when I've been doing podcast appearances and radio stuff is like, this kind of reminds me of the 2016 draft when it was Simmons, Brandon Ingram, Jalen Brown. Now, Simmons just like breaks people's brains and makes people stupid in a variety of different ways because of what's happened within the last couple of years. But like he was a three-time all-star his first three years that he actually played in the league, right? And Jalen obviously has been fucking awesome for the Celtics yeah. this year, even though he has limitations, you know. And Ingram. I was an Ingram guy. I was all in on Ingram back in the day. I remember seeing him at the McDonald's game. I'm like, this is my dude. Uh, and Ingram was awesome for the Pelicans in the playoffs. So now are any of those guys like franchise level guys? Probably not. They're all like sort of number two, but like to be a really good number two option, you are a very, very good NBA player and you're getting a max contract and you're probably going to make, if you're, you know, a current 19 year old, you're probably gonna make $300 million or whatever. <laughs> So that's just sort of how I've been – like, you know, you could say in the 2016 draft, any of those guys, realistically, you could still argue that. Like, who's the best player out of those three? Who would you want out of those three? And that's why I feel like this draft class is kind of cool. So I'm a Apollo guy. I like the creation. I'm a sucker for that. But uh, it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out five years from now, ten years from now, whatever it is. Yeah, and, you know, uh, our friend Raphael Barlow – uh, made a point like if you went and read Jason Tatum's scouting report, uh, his, his college scouting report, you could pretty much just cut copy paste it, and a lot of it would be would be Paulo. It's a good point. <laughs> I hated it as a prospect. <laughs> I was so wrong about Tatum. Wow. I, did, I did a Facebook video for SB Nation about why <laughs> Josh Jackson is a better prospect than Jason. <laughs> Somehow I still have my job. I shouldn't. They don't pay me to be right. Thankfully. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, a lot of, I think that's, that's Raphael's smarter than me and that's dead on. I think, you know, it was a lot of like catch and hold stuff in that to me was the biggest red flag with Paolo early in the year. I'm like, dude, just like make a decision. Like, Get off it. Point five. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, uh, I don't know. I think, you know, maybe just the way NBA offense is played will be more conducive to him making quicker decisions where mm-hmm. college basketball just like so overcoached and sort of under executed in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, you wonder if someone like Paolo or guys or like Tatum guys who are just like bigger and better than everyone, like if that is a little bit of a disadvantage at that level. So Corey, I, I, I don't know if you had another question for the top three guys, but I did want to ask the question that, you know, we both had uh, about the Pistons at five, because yeah. we noticed here that you, said for the most likely pick here is Keegan Murray, but your best pick 
is Jalen Duran. And, and I think it's a really interesting pick because for me to see Jalen Duran's name that high on a mock draft or a board is pretty against the grain. It's not something that we see a lot of right now with a lot of evaluators or sites or whatever. So wanted to pick your brain a little bit. It seems like you're a lot higher on Duran than maybe I am or others are. I know Corey loves Duran as well. Not that I hate Duran. I, I love how it always becomes a thing where if you don't <laughs> like a guy, then you hate them. Uh, not that at all. But was wondering if we could pick your brain a little bit on Duran and your rationale or you know how, how you feel about him and why you had him that high up uh, on your mock draft. Well, why wouldn't you love a short center who can't shoot? I just, <laughs> you know, I think like, you know, the tier one of this draft is the top four guys to me. In the mm-hmm. tier two, this is where I think it gets interesting. Mm. I would go with Duran, Shaden Sharp, and AJ Griffin. All three of those guys are pretty risky bets. But I think part of it is like, you got to not be afraid to fail. You know, you got to, sure. you know, maybe like you don't try to hit a single when you got the fifth pick in the draft, you like go up there and swing for the fences. So right. why do I have those guys as tier two combination of youth, physical tools. Okay. And uh, I had another one that I'm blanking on now, but okay. Let's just say youth and physical tools. Like Duran, I like him because obviously super young. He's the youngest American prospect in the class. I really liked a coming out of USC. And I think that Duran has a lot of the same appeals as a Kongwu while just being like a way more ferocious athlete. Agreed. Dude looks like he's chiseled out of granite. Right. Like he has, he's a straight up man child. Like his physicality Mm -hmm. is going to be the one thing that translates right away. Despite the fact that he's the youngest American player in the draft. Uh, So I think, you know, the defensive versatility is, I would say what makes him pretty interesting first and foremost I think that he's going to be able to play a variety of different types of pick and roll coverages. I think like with the seven, five wingspan and with a fucking barrel chest, he's going to be able to be pretty good in a drop. For instance, Mm -hmm. I also think he's good enough containing ball handlers on the perimeter to like get to the level of the screen or even be a switch defender. Now, if either of you guys want to disagree with those two assessments, I'm very much open to the fact that my opinion could be wrong there. Like trying to grade a college center's ability to defend in space, it can be tricky. I'm saying that I got him five because I think he can do it. Now I might be totally wrong and he's getting burned off the bounce by Marcus Smart or something. And then it's like, well, I got that one wrong. But <laughs> so I think, you know, the defensive coverage versatility is the first point. And then offensively, I think that he's just a monster athlete. He's gonna. I wish he would have done the vertical jumping and all that stuff because he is going to hammer home lobs, I think. He's going to have a massive catch radius. He's right. going to be a monster on the offensive glass. Uh, and then I think he's got short role playmaking ability, more so yeah. than a lot of guys who are lob catchers. So, like, if your primary thing is a lob threat, like – not to always bring this back to the Bulls, but I'm thinking like Daniel Gafford or someone like you're not typically relying on those guys to be a short role playmaker, but you know who can do that? Who's also a lob threat is Rob Williams and who also has some length. So I don't think that that's like a perfect comparison between Rob and between Duran, but uh, it's at least enough of a baseline comparison. that I think you could maybe see how that works. And so, yeah, I like his defensive versatility. I like the fact that he's super strong. He can jump out of the gym. 
And right. I think he can give you some short role playmaking boosts. And if I don't know how much of the EYBL tape you guys watch, because it's funny having two EYBL guys in this draft with Sharp and Duran. Mm-hmm. Duran was shooting it a little bit too from midrange. Yeah. I didn't really do little that. Jerma- Jermaine O'Neal turnarounds. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. like, why not? I mean, it. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I got him. That's my tier two. Uh, they could all disappoint, to be sure. But I mean, <laughs> they have the best tools and the best physicality. And this is another, this is one of my other points. I tweeted this the other day, but it's like when you got the tools, you just have more outs to be a good play. Yeah. Like Wiggins was my example for this. So, like Wiggins, they put him in like the primary scoring role or whatever. And like that was just never a natural fit for him. I think because Wiggins isn't a great processor. You know, and he, he never had a super great handle either. And then, like, for as great of an athlete as he is, he's not very, like, slippery. He's, like, a little bit mechanical as an athlete. But, like, how many guys can't – like, so, like, as a star, he was, like, not good enough to be a star. <laughs> now that he's a wing stopper, it's like he's insanely overpowered yeah. to yeah. be a wing stopper. Yeah. <laughs> like, if I was to ask you guys, like, oh, you know, who's, like, the best wing stopper in the league coming into the year? You'd probably say, oh, maybe Michael Bridges, best young wing stopper maybe. But, like, athletically, between Wiggins and Michael, it's, like, it's a joke. It's not even close. Wiggins has, like, turbo boosters on his legs. And Michael's like, solid, very good, right. good athlete all around. But, like, you can only get an Andrew Wiggins-level guy with tools if you got the number right. one. So, I buy in on the tools. I'm also not afraid. Like, I can be wrong. I don't care. Well, <laughs> like, here's, yeah, go ahead. Here's the thing. Like, <sighs> And it's so easy for people to like just kind of fall into that consensus group think uh, at, at this time of the year, but go historically like down the drafts and like a teams don't draft based off mock drafts and consensus is almost always broken up incredibly early. Uh, and then two, like the rankings that you have in consensus never check out when you look back in a redraft in, you know, even like a year down the line, but more so when guys are developed like five or 10 years down the line. So one, I I love the reasoning behind that tier. Like AJ Griffin is third on my board. Like uh, I look at him, I'm like one, he had that pedigree coming in. Uh, If you watch his high school tape, he would like, to me, I wouldn't have been like, Oh, he's going to be the best shooter in the class. I would have been like, he's a a, like big wing who creates his own shot and gets to the rim and uses uh, his athleticism. And then now it's like, People are like, I don't know if he can get to the rim and he's a bad athlete. But for me, it's like, for a lot of the reasons I would like want, I think you would be high on like Jalen Brown as a prospect to me. Like there's like similarities. I see some Jimmy Butler. I see some Jalen Brown in AJ. So like the tools aspect, like, okay, maybe he's not the best wing defender in the class right now, but I know that he has the tools to like, when he's not 18 years old coming off a COVID season and an injury, I know that he's going to be coachable coming from like, you know, a uh, uh, NBA uh, family tree and being the son of a coach. Like I'll bet on his tools over, you know, somebody like in his perceived range, like Malachi Branham, who I just straight up think is like a really bad defender and doesn't <laughs> have the same tools to one day, like recover on that side of the ball. Uh, with Duran, I saw him uh, early in the year against Virginia tech. And in layup lines, I was like, yeah, like this guy windmills, like, you know, looks awesome. And then the game started and I was like, not really the best Jalen Duran performance uh, tonight. He did have one like block. We were like, oh my God, like that is just a pure 
athleticism thing. But like you said, he should literally just like be recovering from his senior prom and not like getting ready for the NBA draft. And what I love about him is that like he got better throughout the year. Like you saw like early in the year, it was like the classic like big man with low motor thing was the the thing. And then like throughout the year, I think I don't think you could say that about him. I thought he played consistently hard. I thought his processing got better. He started like becoming a guy who you can make plays out of the short roll. He could, you know, get the ball on the block and find cutters. Like that kind of progress that he made playing a year up while being so young is like truly encouraging. So I do think that like there is, and and again, he came into the year same, like that's the kind of position he, once he reclassified, like, Oh, he might be a top five pick. So if, if he on draft night, happen to be a top five pick i would not be shocked like in the slightest because i I wrote about him early on i'm like there's gonna be some like gm or owner or whatever that just sees him in a workout like at the team facility and is like oh my god when did we sign this 28 year old veteran like like, he's just he's a an absolute physical marvel to look at so i I could easily see that yeah my last point on duran is memphis had terrible point guard like Omax, Tyler Harris. Money based. Yeah, well, yeah. That too. Yikes. That was the first part of the year. Yeah. (laughs) He's a player who's going to be pretty dependent. Like, he's not going to create, really. Like, he needs someone to set him up. So, uh, that would be my excuse for him. (laughs) That he looked better as Memphis's point guard play got better, a.k.a. Bates wasn't on the team anymore. Right. Uh, So, I don't know. I like him. I got him number five on on my, my board. Um, in your second tier, I, I think we've done enough on Durham, but I wanted to ask about Sharp just because Sharp is a guy who, you know, if we're talking about lottery tickets, it feels like in that tier or maybe in this whole draft class, he seems to be the ultimate embodiment of a lottery ticket just because, number one, there's so little film that we have on him and he just did not play in college. And he's got all those freaky tools that you're looking for. I mean, he's extremely fluid. He's really athletic. The jump shot looks good. So wanted to kind of get your feedback on Sharp. And I, I feel like it depends on who you're reading and who you're watching or who you're listening to. But it seems like his stock is literally all over the place. Like he could go in the top three, top five, or he can end up at, in the late lottery. Was wondering, number one, how you feel. And maybe give us a little bit of, of your evaluation. But also, where do you think he's going to end up going? Do you feel like some team high in the lottery is just going to be like, you know what, we're going to give me that golden ticket and let's figure it out. Or do you feel like he might go later? You could totally see the Kings passing on Ivy to take him. Couldn't you? Like I can't, I I would not be surprised if that happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think if, if you're the Pacers, like the Pacers famously don't like to tank and he's typically the type of prospect you can only get by tanking. So if you're the Pacers, like, you know, do you want a guy who's going to be a little bit safer, like a Matherin or a Keegan? Right. Keegan probably won't even be on the board at six, the way that it's shaping up. Agreed. Uh, but, like, why not just go for Sharp? And, yeah, I'm, I'm going to publish a piece on Sharp tomorrow that I still wow. need to finish writing. But yeah, <laughs> mostly done. I'm 2,000 words into it, so i got to be done with it by now. And uh, what's so interesting about Sharp, I think, is that his entire – so, first of all, like, we were talking about Patrick Baldwin. Like, oh, number one is a sophomore, like, uh, in Illinois, Patrick Baldwin was being called the best prospect in the state as an eighth grader. Like, Patrick Baldwin was on the fucking map for a long time. Shaden Sharp was not on the map 
whatsoever. Like he basically went from unranked essentially to and not playing at Sunrise Christian. I believe he was on Kennedy Chandler's Sunrise Christian team to once the pandemic hit, uh, go into Dream City. And then like he had like, I don't know how many games of solid production there in the Cerebro Sports database. It's like 12 games. I don't know if it was more than that. Uh, if they weren't able to track everything down. And then on the EYBL, he had like, w- you know, one EYBL session where he was really good or not session, but like one season where yeah. he was really good and doing some research on him. What I thought was interesting was that he turned down an opportunity to play for Canada in the FIBA contest last year. Mm. And like Matherin was on that team, right? Houston yeah. was on that team. I'm like, Shit and sharp, you ever play, bro? Like, when are you playing? Like, all he wants to do is do step backs in an empty gym. And (laughs) honestly, if I was his advisor, I would say that's what you should do, young man, because he just hasn't had a lot of time as a top prospect. He became a top prospect because he's got the tools. You know, it's just a blind bet on tools in a lot of ways. He basically has an ideal frame for a shooting guard, six, six, almost seven foot wingspan. Uh, our boy PD Webb said he, he invoked the name Vince Carter in talking about his bounce. I mean, Whoa. he had some extreme bounce around the basket, very good open floor speed. And I'm all in on the shot. I think that he shoots a very soft ball. And I have yeah. effortless, no, no concerns that he's going to be hitting nothing but net on his three pointers. And then the athleticism translates to space creation on the perimeter, too. Like he's just able to hop into these step backs. That, like, only a teenager in 2022 is hitting this shit. Like, no one else is even trying, like, you know how Jordan Poole sometimes he does, like, the double step back or the triple step back in your yeah. back. Like, how is this not traveling? And you're trying to explain <laughs> a gather step, and it's just never going to work. And, uh, like, he can do that. Like, he's good at manipulating the gather step to get into multiple step backs. And he's strong enough and has good enough touch to hit those shots. What's weird about his athleticism is it reminds me of AJ a bit where I'm like, why isn't he a better north-south driver? Now, again, this is me like watching literally like four games of UIBL because there's just not a lot of tape on Sharp. Uh, But he like you just he's such a good tough shot maker. But it's like, dude, you're playing against kids with acne. Like you should be getting easy looks. You shouldn't be having to settle for like these very difficult shots that you're making. Uh, And I used to say that about Anthony Edwards too, but Anthony Edwards in the NBA has just been able to get easier looks by leveraging his immense physical gifts. I do think Edwards is more of like a flexible bendy athlete than sharp has shown himself to be at this point. And certainly more than like AJ Griffin has is, or has shown himself to be. Uh, but I think that that's what's so interesting about Sharp is like he's definitely got the tools, he's got the shooting touch. His process to me is a huge question mark, but his process is a question mark because he hasn't played. Like he barely like the pandemic interrupted the development for all these guys. So that's something that just has to be reckoned with in terms of like it wiped out an EYBL, like an AAU grassroots season, and it wiped out you know a lot of a high school season for some of these guys. So, like, how do you develop process? I would think it's just by playing. Reps. And, you know, probably Shaden Sharp, like, put him in the G League, probably. But also, like, if you were the Pacers and you were just like, actually, you're just going to be an off-ball shooter and we're going to make you use those tools on defense. 
like which no one's ever done because he's such a gifted scorer but it's like he's such a ball of clay that like in my article i was trying to say like he can be whatever you want him to be just because he's got the tools to do it and he's got the youth so i think i would you know again i come back to my fuck it why not logic when mm-hmm. it comes to Jaden sharp but it's like why not i don't know you can you can see a situation where passing on him is just as risky as taking him right like yeah. if you, so for sure i i think like like you said like he just needs reps like that's yeah. the only way to for him to better his, his weaknesses because like when i watch his games i'm like all right one like when you're like i don't know why he's not getting downhill more it's because fucking high school kids love taking jump shots like they just you know if they can create space and get to a jump shot it's just like they like doing that a lot more than than you know constantly attacking and having to like go into the lane and get hit by somebody and draw a foul like it's just like a, a i think a young person's mentality um but like when uh, as far as like the other weaknesses it's like how is he improving his playmaking in an empty gym setting like during workouts and stuff right cuz right now he's very much like a a one pass away guy he's not a guy who is like you know, creating opportunities. He's not coming off a ball, like a ball screen and doing the Luca tray, like weak side hit after shifting the low man type. Deal. He's not doing that stuff. It's like, I can't get a shot. That guy is close to me. Let me pass. And that's also like, when you bring up Indiana, like I have a big proponent of like, they're like a great spot for him because they have Halliburton to do the high level stuff. Okay. And it's an easy mm-hmm. transition for him. Even Detroit with Cade, like to just go in and be like, Hey, go be an athlete knock down shots, create a bucket when you have the opportunity. And like you said, like defend and show the willingness to defend and use your tools. Even if the process isn't perfect on defense, like just, just go put effort in. Um, do you have like, who's your favorite sleeper in this draft? That's a good question. I knew you were going to ask that. So I was trying to come up with some guys. <laughs> how, how deep the sleepers do you want here? Does it, does it matter? I can just say whoever. Say who, who you, whatever your heart is feeling right now. Okay. I, I mean, I'm in on Dalen Terry. I feel like everyone's in on Dalen Terry, but I was in on him for most of the year. I picked Arizona to win the tournament. That didn't go very well. Same. But I just like Dalen Terry as your fifth option on offense. Like the thing about him is he's such a low usage offensive player, but he has a lot of like connective skills. And when I was doing that, like best pick mock draft, I put him to the Rockets at 17, even though that seems like way earlier than most people would take him. But it's like, I don't know if I'm building a team around Paolo and Jalen green, like I need some guys who are just going to defend, be rangy, be switchable and pass the ball and be able to hit a spot up and the spot up is the question mark with him i think but i believe in the shot enough to draft him i think in the mid to probably late first round uh and then you know he seems like such a good passer and he he was a good passer but i feel like the synergy numbers on him were not good I haven't looked mm-hmm. at him in a minute, but I believe they were like he was like sub twenty percentile in pick and roll playmaking, which yeah. surprised me because he seems like a very good passer to me. Uh, another thing I like about him and what I want in a wing defender, I think this is a sort of a secret ingredient to Michael Bridges being so good, is that he's really good in transition. 
And Dalen Terry is really good in transition too. Like he's able to get the pick sixes, sure, but also just like filling the lane on the break and being able to finish when he does that. So yes. I like Dalen Terry. Uh, like I don't know how much upside he has really because he's such a low usage player. And like part of upside is being able to operate with the ball or like, you know, being a guy who's involved often in the offensive plays. But yeah, so that's the first guy I'll name. And then well, well let's stick with Dalen for a second. Because yes, I know please. one Al- that's Albert's favorite uh I think player in, in the draft. Cool. Um two, like, you know, you're talking about like upside and stuff. I was talking, I don't know, it's probably like early March or so, and I was talking to a scout in the league, and I'm seeing the success of like Lonzo Ball. I like I, I thought Derek White, like just one of these like you said, like connecty guys. And I'm like starting to watch Terry a little bit more. And I'm like, what are we thinking? Is he staying at at Arizona? Is he going to come out? And he's like, well, I don't know from everything I'm hearing. He's the plan is to stay another year. I doubt he's going to low key. I think he's Arizona's best prospect. And I was like, that's Uh, a a scout in the league. And um, I was like, that's interesting. And, you know, I think that's probably, uh, you know, a little bit of a controversial take given how a lot of people feel about Matherin. But look at the success of guys that are like six, seven and could pass the ball. And I mean, I don't know what the synergy numbers are, but if you're watching his film and you think he's a bad passer, I think you're a crazy person. Uh, The the timing and touch and feel he has like hitting guy like cutters and phenomenal. Um, and the switchability, like the length, like that, to me, he's the modern NBA. And also, like, his vibes are crazy. Like, his personality is just everything you want, like, in a guy who's going to be a lead ball handler. So I love that. And I basically, I was asking this person this because I was like, is he going to be like a guy that if he goes in the draft, like, is he going to be a guy that the Bulls, it wouldn't be crazy if the Bulls took him, which is yeah. was my mindset for that. And, uh, I don't think now as we get, you know, approach the draft, we're about a week away. I don't think it's as crazy, but Albert, you opine about Dale and Terry. So, okay. First off, thank you. I'm just so happy because we're getting so tight and so close to the draft that we're probably not going to be able to do a Dale and Terry episode. So I've just been waiting for months to talk about Dale and Terry. And now is my moment and we're here. Um, (laughs) I got to watch Dale and Terry twice and especially during the Pac-12 tournament in Vegas and when Creesa went down and the next game like Terry was given a bunch of the playmaking duties like you could see that the guy was absolutely electric and you know that carried over into the tournament and just when you go back and watch his tape there's so much to like about the guy and and the biggest thing with him is Corey you mentioned the vibes it is so freaking palpable with him. Like I was in the building and the whole building was reacting to every single thing he was doing. It was like Maximus in Gladiator, right? When he does the whole, are you not entertained and all that stuff? Like the crowd just ate him up. And that's the thing with Terry that I absolutely love. It's the competitive competitive spirit that he has, that he plays with. The chemistry that he had with his teammates whether it was Kyer or Matherin or Tabellis or Coloco he just had this ESP unbelievable connection with all his teammates and the passes that he was throwing all over the court were just unbelievable so for me I I love Terry and I I absolutely 
everything that you guys said I agree with defensively too I think he's just going to grow into that body and he's going to be six seven with over a seven foot wingspan and just be jacked in a couple of years and be unbelievable on that side so I, I think he's going to be great and I'm going to say something crazy that people may hate me for and may give me crap for but I think the Knicks should take him 11 and the Knicks should feel absolutely fine about it and people I, I know Nick's Twitter won't like it because they're gonna be like who the hell is Dale and Terry because all they're thinking about right now is like Tari Eason and Benedict Matherin and AJ Griffin but if the Knicks took Dale and Terry at 11 he would give them something that they just don't have at, at, from any of their wings and that's versatility he's gonna be able to play make he's gonna be able to run and push things in transition I think the shooting will come I I just I love it I absolutely love it, and then, and I think the Knicks should take him, and people are going to hate me for it, but it's okay, and I want to put that in the in the world because I think it'd be awesome. You're on the record. I guess the question with him is like, does he have enough scoring gravity to unlock the playmaking? Is he going to yeah. put enough pressure on the defense as a scorer? Uh, I don't know. Like, do you guys have any takes on his floater? To me, he's a guy who needs a floater. I, yeah. I do. I actually do have a take on his floater because I was focused on it today for another podcast that I was on. And I was like, I feel like he has great touch, but he misses them. So I was like, that puts me in a precarious position to choose a side because I feel optimistic about it. But I feel like the evidence is telling me I shouldn't. But I think that's the beauty in watching film and not like, uh, putting a hard cap on, you know, a specific skill set because at his height, one, I th- I agree. I think it's such an important uh, shot for him coming off of the a ball screen. Uh, you see what it does for a guy like Dyson Daniels, who I think if you were comparing like skill set for skill set, like that's probably the guy in this specific draft. You would probably like tall, multi tool, yep. maybe no like specific standout skill, versatile, blah blah blah. Um, and you see what it does for, for Daniels. So I think it's got to get better, but like, I'm pretty optimistic about it. Agreed. And I, and I feel also that he didn't get the same amount of minutes as some of these other, other guys. And I feel like more volume, more time. I think it'll be there. I'm a believer. He especially shot the ball. Well, coming down the stretch at the end of the season from three. So I think there's a lot to like there. And I look, I, Obviously, I'm, I'm a Simmons guy, and I love what Simmons says all the time when he says, like, I want guys who are going to compete and are going to work on their craft. And I feel like Terry's that level of a competitor. I think he's going to be a sicko. I think he's going to live in the gym. He's only going to get better. Um, I've talked a bunch to, you know, different people, and I just think it's there. The makeup is there. The energy is there. The desire is there. And like you said, right, maybe he's not a plus-plus athlete, but I love the measurables on him. I love the IQ on him. So, I'm a believer. Obviously, I'm not saying he should ever be a number one option. I don't think it's ever going to get to that point. But I think he's going to offer enough. And I think his passing is such a threat. And it's so crafty and smart that it'll open things up for him, even if they don't believe in the shot, if that makes sense. Do you guys see the trade that just went down? It's in the comments. The comments broke the trade. <laughs> oh, Christian God. Dallas, Uh-oh. 26. Really? Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, Christian Wood to Dallas for 26. So the Rockets have three 17, 20. Are we thinking a 17, 26 package to trade up now? What's, what's your initial reaction to that? Well, I guess my first thought is that the 26th pick in the draft is not a lot to give up for Christian Wood. That seems like just on aggregate of talent, a pretty good return for Dallas. Yeah. 
Uh, I feel like Houston probably could have gotten a better pick, probably, but I don't know. You know, who knows? Uh, and then I'm thinking, like, how does Christian Wood pair with Luca? Yeah. Like, with Luca, I probably want like defenders. Christian Wood. What I would say that Christian Wood is not a good defender. Is anyone going to disagree with me on that? <laughs> no. no, I'm not a Christian Wood guy. <laughs> me but he's, he's he's talented. He's. Yeah. I think I think Luca's going to make his life easy. I mean, I I don't know him personally. I've there. never I've never interacted with him. I haven't heard great things. It doesn't seem like you know he's right. the best chemistry guy. Um, and I know I think Luca is kind of a hard ass in that regard. So I'm interested to see that dynamic. But I think theoretically the offense should be pretty intriguing. With like, what guys. is he giving them? I guess that they identified that they needed in the playoffs. Like in the playoffs, it was like okay, they need a real center. Mm. But like. Okay, is he going to be their small ball five? Like, I don't know if he has the chops defensively to be able to tie those lineups together. I don't know. But also, like, you're taking the 26th pick for a really talented scorer, and Luca will probably make him an even better scorer. So that's an interesting trade. I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up since it just went down. It's certainly a – I think it's a good swing. I think yeah, it's a good swing, especially for a team like Dallas who, like, what are they getting out of the 26th pick? Yeah, like right. they're like they probably think like we're close to a championship. We have an all-time, a potentially all-time player. Let's you know try to expedite this thing. We don't need this draft pick. So, and you know, I don't know what his contract situation is. This might be the last year of his deal because didn't he sign sort of a short-term deal? It like, and it's cheap him? too. It's pretty cheap for him, right? Well, like, I was also thinking like you could probably pivot off him and he'll still have value, even yeah. if. Hmm. It end up being a perfect fit so figured i should mention that chat had it first chat had it first shout out to the chat um shout out to mr ray mino f uh everyone needs a smile ryan gibbs matt t uh i make music steve kang said albert's looking like a whole meal on camera (laughs) (laughs) if you're in the chat and you're watching uh make sure you know you're smashing that like button doing your thing on the on the channel uh giving it a share uh ricky uh, we appreciate you taking the time to come chop it up with us man this was uh a lot of fun so before you go please tell the people like where they could find you and the pieces that you've been uh working on and that you you know just kind of came out with so they can go and find that because you've been putting out you know good stuff as you said since andrew wiggins was a mcdonald's all-american yeah you can find all my work at espionation.com uh usually on the front page or the nba page and yeah i've done in this class i did the uh the patrick baldwin profile we talked about i've done pretty comprehensive scouting reports on my top three players which is paulo chet and Jaden ivy i'll have a shade and sharp piece tomorrow i gotta finish that and uh, I'm already starting to think about the 2023 board because I do that the day after the draft every year. Wow. And then this year I'm thinking like, who are the top returners outside of Turk Smith from NC State? <laughs> I'm having a real hard time identifying the top returners this year. It's going to be a weird next draft because the top guys aren't in college. We're going to have mm-hmm. two overtime elite guys. We're going to have, right. uh, you know, one Mignana playing in France, Scoop playing in the G League. That's Part right. of me is getting a little sad about that. I'm like, man, this past year was fun because we had like mm. the best prospects playing at the biggest programs. And I yeah. guess if you're a college basketball fan, you get annoyed with the best players going to Duke every year or whatever. 
but like that just makes it more convenient and easier for me. So I actually <laughs> that. like they yeah. can all go to Duke or Kentucky. They're going to be on ESPN and it's going to be chill. Uh, so next year is going to be pretty fun and interesting draft class. I think super talented at the top. And yeah, you can find all my work at SBNation.com. I think my favorite returner is Arthur Kaluma. Maybe. Ballard, yeah, that's, that's a good pick. Kevin um, McCuller, shout out. Mike Miles, that's my guy. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for uh, another episode of the Draft Act NBA Draft Podcast. Albert, tell people where they can find you on the World Wide Web. Uh, you can find me at Alberto Gim on Twitter is where you, find, where you can find me. And doing stuff for No Ceilings is where I'm at. Yes, sir. We're full steam ahead. NoCeilingsNBA.com. Subscribe. It's free. Content. Monday through Friday, delivered directly to your inbox. Uh, there's no effort. You don't even have to, you know, type in a URL to get there. It's it's coming to you. We're, uh, you know, we're doing it. We we've made it this far. The grind is almost over, but it will start again. For Ricky, it's going to start the day after as he releases <laughs> his his 2023 uh, mock. Um, until that time, y'all, we out. Thanks for rocking with us. Peace. Peace.